Let's stand together as we're going to read these few verses that will serve as a a kicking off point for us this morning. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to You this morning for so many things, but above all, we are grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ and for how You have invited us to be joined together with Him. Those of us who have turned from our sin and trusted in Him, we have been baptized into Christ. Baptized into His death, His burial, His resurrection. And because of that, we are all joined together this morning. Grateful for these truths. And we pray, Lord, that as we as we think about these things over the coming few minutes, that You would stir up our affection for the Lord Jesus and stir up our affection for the body of Christ. Help us to understand and love the truths before us and to walk in light of them. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Himself. Amen. Please be seated. By God's providence... Our first week in this new location is our third week in a sermon series entitled Membership and Immersion, Baptized into One Body. We're considering the nature of the church, the nature of church membership, the nature of baptism, and how all of these things are connected biblically. In our first week in the series, Pastor Jason put before us this question, what is the church? And a key point that he brought before us is that the church is marked out by a unique, common response and commitment to the gospel. Last week we we moved on and considered the question, what is church membership? And Membership is the way that churches identify those who have been marked off by that unique, common response and commitment to the gospel. More broadly, last week I gave you this definition of church membership. Church membership is a formal relationship between a local church and a Christian characterized by that church's affirmation and oversight of that Christian's discipleship and that Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of that church. In the New Testament, among the number of believers marked out as officially belonging to the body of Christ were those who had repented 
and been baptized. According to Acts chapter 2, the pattern of the early church was belief, baptism, formal inclusion in the number and life of the local church. Which baptized believers were included in that formal number? All of them. Belief, baptism, formal inclusion in the number and life of the local church. And that brings us to our focus this morning, which is this question, what is baptism? Here it is in a nutshell. It's not in your notes, and if you don't, if you if you want to write it down, you could try, but you'll end up picking it up as we work our way through the points in your your bulletin. Baptism is the immersion of a believer into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, symbolized by the initiatory rite of immersion into water. It is the visual testimony of one's union with Christ and His body. So as we go along this morning, we'll be taking smaller chunks of that definition and expounding upon them, going in a bit deeper, no pun intended. So first of all, baptism is immersion. That is in your notes. Baptism is immersion. The Greek verb for baptism is baptizo, which means I immerse or I dip. It just means to put something underwater. There are a host of New Testament passages indicating that that's what the word means. I want to give you just a few of them if you're taking notes. The first is Matthew chapter 3, verses 6 and 13 through 17. Matthew 3, verses 6 and 13 through 17. In Matthew 3, 6, we are introduced to John the Baptist baptizing people in the River Jordan. I would suggest to you that there is no reason to be in the river if baptism is something less than immersion, putting someone underwater. You get into the river because to be baptized is to be immersed. And this is what is depicted just a few verses later when Jesus Himself comes for baptism. And upon being baptized, the text tells us that Jesus came up from the water. He had been under, now He's coming up from it. John chapter 3, verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22 also speaks of John the Baptist baptizing in a place called Anon, near Salim. The text tells us why he was baptizing there. The text says, because there was much water there. Why is that significant? Because if you're going to immerse someone, you need a lot of water. If you're going to sprinkle someone, you don't need much at all. Romans chapter 6, the passage that we just read, all Paul's language indicates that, that when we speak of baptism, we are speaking of immersion. Just listen to some of the words that, that were in those five verses that we read a moment ago. We, we were baptized into Christ. Baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. Context clues alone should indicate to us that, this, that we are being put into something. Now, there, there are other uses of baptizo that, that would indicate to us that this is what immersion is. I would like also to make this point. There are no uses of baptizo or baptisma, which is the noun form. No uses in the New Testament indicating something less than immersion. In other words, when these words are used, they are universally indicating immersion. Now, I'm not just 
beating the denominational drum here. There, there is a, a reason for this. There's a theologically important reason that baptism is immersion and that we understand it that way. And the key is there in Romans 6 that we read a moment ago, and we'll get there shortly. When we baptize them, we put them under water because of what it means. Being immersed in water doesn't save us, but it represents our being immersed in someone who does save us. Hallelujah. We'll get to that in a moment. Baptism is immersion, being put into something. Secondly, baptism is is the immersion of a believer. It's the immersion of a believer. In every recorded case of baptism in the New Testament, the gospel has been heard, it's been received, and the condition of faith has been consciously fulfilled prior to the baptism. And that's why we call it believer's baptism. And believer's baptism is what the Lord Jesus specifically commanded in what we have come to call the Great Commission in Matthew 28.19, which was read for us by Pastor Rick at the beginning of our service. There the Lord Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing who? The disciples that we've made. Baptizing them. And we were not only commissioned by Jesus to baptize believers, but the, the apostles came along after the Lord Jesus and in all of their teaching, all of their teaching in the New Testament, we find them either explicitly requiring faith for baptism or assuming it. I'll give you just a few references for, for examples. First of all, there's Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12, which which tell us that baptism depicts our being raised with Christ through faith. Through faith. There's also the passage that we read earlier. We'll get there again shortly. Romans 6, verses 1 through 5. That passage makes zero sense. We don't understand that, that baptism is for those who believe. There's also Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. Galatians 3, 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Those who have been baptized have put on Christ. Jesus, Jesus commands the, the baptism of believers. The apostles teach exclusively the baptism of believers. And the New Testament models exclusively the baptism of believers. Here are just a few references for that. Examples of believers being baptized. You could write down Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Acts 2, 37 through 41, where we read these words, those who received his word were baptized. You could write down Acts chapter 8, verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. You could also write down Acts chapter 10, verse 47, where Peter declares, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The, the uniform teaching of the Bible is that baptism is the immersion of a believer. And that just makes perfect sense because of what baptism represents, which brings us to our, our third step, which is that baptism is the immersion into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism is immersion into the death, burial, and resurrection of of Jesus Christ. And so now we go back to Romans 6. 
I'm going to read those five verses, all five verses again, all right? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now listen carefully to me, please. Until, until this point in this message, this may have seemed like a somewhat trivial discourse about a religious ritual. It isn't. Some, some may regard it that way. I, I, I would disagree. However, what I'm about to tell you is the most important thing that you will ever hear. And I beg you to listen. What Paul writes here in Romans 6 builds upon what he has written in chapters 1 through 5. In chapter 1, he delivers some devastating news. And that is that although God, our Creator God, He alone is worthy of man's worship, and although man was created to worship, and man inevitably worships, the entire human race, including us, has rejected God as the sole object of our worship, and instead has worshipped created things. And our false worship has moved us to sin against God in innumerable ways. The very first man who ever lived decided he did not want to worship and serve God, but rather he would worship and serve himself and power and pleasure. And Paul explains to us in Romans chapters 1 and 2 and 5 that not only is, is Adam's rebellion common to us all, we, we all reject God naturally and go all our own way. Paul writes, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but also, like Adam, we, we deserve God's wrath because of that rebellion. Paul writes that the payment for sin, our sin, is death. When Paul writes that word death, the wages of sin is death. He's talking about a death that is eternal. It, it is not a death whereby we simply cease to exist. But rather, if we, if we listen to the voice of the Lord Jesus speaking to us through the Gospels, we know that the death that Paul talks about here is an eternal conscious torment under the omnipotent wrath of God. And Paul goes to great pains in chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 to make this point. All of us, all of us, all of us deserve this. And we may be horrified at the thought that a loving God could do such a thing. But if that is our disposition... It only indicates that we think little both of God's holiness and of our sin. And no matter what our 
disposition is, no matter how we feel about it, hell is the penalty, the just penalty for our sin. So teaches the Bible. The Bible teaches that God is a good judge. And what that means is that He, he brings judgment upon every single sin. There's not a, there's not a single sin that will pass by God's judgment. It's a terrible predicament for us because we can't pay our sin off like, like we tend to talk about in our culture. Someone will break a law and we talk about them paying their debt to society. That doesn't work here. You can't pay off an infinite offense. That's why hell is forever. And many of the things that, that we appeal to, to, to try to earn God's favor or appeal to God's favor, they, they, they simply won't work. Being in the right family will not do us any good. Going to church will not do us any good. Piling up so-called good works to cover up our bad works, that will not work because all these so-called good works, they can't take care of the guilt that's underneath that pile. These sins that we've already committed, they, they have to be punished because God is a good judge. And these things that we called good works, Paul teaches in chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, they're not good works because they come from hearts that are far from God. But there is good news, and that is that God is gracious. God is gracious and He desires to justify sinners. We learn this in Romans 3. We might ask, we would be logical to ask this, how can God do this? How is it possible for, for God to punish our sin and therefore show Himself to be righteous, show Himself to be a good judge, and at the same time be gracious to us and not give us what we all deserve? How is this even possible? Well, in chapter 3, Paul says that God solved that conundrum by giving His own Son as a propitiation for our sin. Oh, what a wonderful word. What a wonderful word. If you know what that word means, propitiation is as beautiful as the loveliest melody ever sung. It means that Jesus came to be a substitute sacrifice for our sin. A, a sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God. So Jesus, perfectly sinless Himself, He went to the cross and God put upon His shoulders the sins of sinful men. And Jesus was punished for that sin as if He had committed it Himself. The Bible teaches that God, God gave His Son out of love for us. John 3.16 Jesus came willingly out of love for us. He died on that cross. But three days later, God the Father raised Him from the dead by that act, declaring Jesus victorious over sin and death so that, listen to this, everyone, everyone who repents of their sin, that is, turns away from their sin and towards Christ and trusts in Him alone, they are forgiven of that sin debt and reconciled to God. 
Now, we need to be very careful to understand rightly what Paul's communicating to us then in Romans 6, verses 1 through 5. See, the Bible uses this word baptized to describe both the ritual of immersion in water and to describe our by faith immersion into Christ. One of those two things saves us from the wrath to come. The other does not save us, but rather depicts that salvation. So Paul, Paul is not teaching that when we are immersed in, in water, we are immersed into Christ. Water baptism does not cause our union with Christ. Union with Christ comes first. Immersion in water is a subsequent ritual. Depiction. It's a depiction of what takes place when a person repents of their sin and surrenders to Christ in faith. So just, just as a person is immersed in that water, they, they have already been immersed by faith into Christ. They've been joined to Him, covered by Him. And the Bible teaches that all the blessings of salvation come through union with Christ. In fact, that's what Paul is teaching here in Romans 6, verses 1 through 5. Union with Christ. It's a crucial concept for us to understand as believers. Union with Christ is similar to, to a marriage. Many of us in the room are married. When you marry somebody, you are legally bound to that person. And all his or her assets become yours, and all your assets become theirs. And all his or her debts become yours, and, and vice versa. Some of you remember this taking place when you got married, right? My wife and I had no assets, no debts. It was wonderful. It's not the case now. When we repent and trust in Christ, something like a marriage takes place. All, all that is his becomes mine. And blessedly, all that's mine becomes his. This is stacked so heavily in our favor. It's, it's hard even to comprehend, but it's what the Bible teaches us. When, when I repent and trust in Christ, my sin becomes His along with its guilt and its punishment. P- Peter teaches in his third chapter of his first epistle, second chapter of his first epistle, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. So, so he takes my sin dies with it on the cross, and in a sense, He kills my sin, my guilt, my death in Himself on the cross so that it is gone. But Paul would have us to understand in Romans 6 that Jesus didn't just die, right? He was raised to newness of life. And so, not only my death, my sin, my guilt, Jesus's, but His life is mine. That new life is mine because I'm immersed into Him by faith. His life is mine. Oh, blessed thought, right? Blessed thought. That's what Paul is teaching here. Because by faith, I have been made one with Christ, like a marriage. In fact, the New Testament speaks of of our union with Christ as a marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Because I've been joined to Christ by faith, His death is my death to sin. And what that means is, sin and death no longer have any power over me. His burial, His burial, that's my old self being buried. So I'm not stuck being who I was before Christ rescued me from sin. 
His resurrection, that's my resurrection. That's my being raised to walk in the newness of life. I'm a new creation. Is this good news, family? This is good news. This is good news. That immersion into Christ and identification with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection is what we reenact when we are immersed into water after our conversion. Immersion is baptism. It's immersion into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Fourth in your notes, baptism is immersion into the body of Christ to the church. It's immersion into the body of Christ, the church. According to the New Testament, life in Christ, but outside of His body, the church, it just isn't a thing. It's not something that we find in the Bible. The design of God for the believer is for life to be lived in the community of the saints. So I'd ask you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you're in Romans right now, it's just a couple, of, a couple of books over, a few books over. Ephesians chapter 2. Romans 6 tells of our baptism into Christ, our being joined to Him. Ephesians 2 tells of our being joined to one another, the church. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. Ephesians 2.12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now listen to that language, all right? You, Gentile believer, you were formerly cut off from Christ. You were formerly cut off from the people of God. Not just God, but also the people of God. Now listen to verse 13. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, this is perhaps one of the two best passages in the New Testament that teaches us that there are not two peoples of God, Israel and the church, but rather there is one people of God, the church, consisting of believing Jews and Gentiles. However, what I would like for us to see this morning is that Paul teaches here that when we come to Christ, we are joined not only to Him as our head, but to a community of saints. We are attached to a community of saints. 
He uses no fewer than three metaphors to make sure that we get it. He says, first of all, that he created in himself one new man in verse 15. That's a, that's the metaphor of the human body. He also says that, that we are now members of the household of God. Verse 19, that's a family metaphor. He also says that we're now part of a holy temple. That's that temple metaphor that we saw so much when we were studying 1 Peter and then the post-exilic prophets. What's the point that he's trying to make? When we are joined to Christ, we are joined to a body, a family, a building. There is no kind of Christian life outside of union with the body of Christ. And so tight is that connection between being being baptized into Christ and being a part of the church that Paul actually uses the language of our being baptized into the church in 1 Corinthians 12.13. Not only were we baptized into Christ when we were saved, but we were baptized into His body, the church. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians 12.13. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. When by faith we were immersed into Christ, we also were simultaneously immersed into the church. Immersion, or baptism, is the immersion into the body of Christ, the church. Fifth, baptism is symbolized by immersion into water. Symbolized by immersion into water. For the sake of time, I'm not going to say much here. This, this point has been assumed by much of what I've already said. You might write down 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. That is a, a great reference. We have an entire sermon on that passage alone from about a year ago on our website. But there Peter teaches that, that water baptism depicts Christ's death and resurrection, saving us from the wrath to come. So just as the ark of Noah carried eight persons safely through the waters of judgment, so also if you and I are in Christ, we have been safely brought through the waters of the judgment of God's wrath. Jesus, Jesus, like, like Noah's ark, went into that water and came safely out of the water. Jesus went into death, into the waters of judgment. We, safe in Him by faith, and He was raised to life, bringing us safely to God. Water immersion, Peter teaches there, depicts our immersion into the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that is why the New Testament teaches that baptism should take place after conversion. Baptism is symbolized by immersion into water. And sixth, finally, baptism is the initiatory rite of the Christian life. That's R-I-T-E, the the initiatory rite of the Christian life. That's just a fancy way of saying it's the ceremonial beginning of the Christian life. It welcomes the believer into the life of the church. If you like, you could turn with me over to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Colossians 2, verses 11 and 12. I'm going to read them for you now. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him, in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now here Paul compares baptism with the circumcision of Christ. Elsewhere spoken of in the scriptures as circumcision of the heart, which Paul is kind enough to explain to us in Romans chapter 2, is altogether different than the physical circumcision of the Old Testament. And here his point is that immersion into Christ marks the cutting away of that old self, the cutting away of that old manner of life, and the beginning of a new life. Baptism into Christ is the beginning of the Christian life. And that is why water baptism comes on the heels of our baptism into Christ. That is our conversion, and it serves as our public profession of faith. It is is our way of saying publicly, I'm beginning the Christian life. I have been baptized into the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I am in Him benefited from, I have identified with his death, his burial, and his being raised from the dead. Acts chapter 2, verses 38 through 41. This is a passage that I've alluded to several times in the last couple of weeks. It's a passage that uh, Pastor John, it's part of the passage that Pastor John will walk us through next week, Lord willing. But it shows that baptism is the biblical public profession of faith and the recognition of one's place in his body. It's a recognition of one's place in his body. Let me read those verses to you quickly. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, by being immersed in water, the Christian is making a statement. He's publicly professing, I have followed Christ But listen to this. There's another statement being made as well. The church, by giving baptism, is also making a statement. I already alluded to Acts chapter 10, verse 47. You might want to write down Acts 10, 47, and 48. I'm going to read those verses to you again. Before I do, let me set the stage a little bit. There in Acts chapter 10, Peter has traveled to Caesarea to preach the gospel to Cornelius and others. Now when he does so, when he preaches the gospel to them, He and the brothers with him, they recognize the manifestation of the Spirit in these Gentiles just as took place in the Jews at Pentecost. And so Peter, upon seeing this, he proclaims, he asks an important question and then makes a command. He says this, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. There are three observations that I would like to make about Peter's question there. Three observations. You might want to write them down. Peter's question again was this. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? The first observation that I would like to make based upon that question is this. First of all, it must be the church's responsibility to give or withhold baptism. 
Otherwise, there would be no reason to ask this question. Second, it must be the church's responsibility to do so based upon a credible conversion. It must be the church's responsibility to do so, withhold or give baptism based upon a credible conversion. Peter implies by his question that it would be inappropriate for the church to withhold baptism upon seeing these new believers have received the Holy Spirit. He simultaneously implies it would be perfectly appropriate to withhold baptism if they had not received the Spirit. That is, if they had not been saved. A third observation. Since a credible conversion is the criteria for giving baptism, then when the church gives baptism, it formally and publicly affirms a person's profession of faith. I could shorten that by saying, When the church gives baptism, they are formally and publicly affirming that person's profession of faith. So there are two statements being made every time somebody is baptized. At least that's the way it should be biblically. By giving baptism, the church says publicly, we formally affirm the credibility of this person's public, this person's profession of faith. By receiving baptism, by being immersed in water, the believer says publicly, I have been joined by faith to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and I take my place in His body, the church. This happens at the beginning of the Christian life. It's it's an official rite of the church. It is the initiatory rite. That is, it's intended to be the first official act in the life of a believer in the church. And it's intended to be the first official act of the church in the the life of the new believer, welcoming that believer into participation in the body. Some of you may wonder why when we take the Lord's Supper, when we observe it together, we invite those who have trusted in Christ and been baptized to observe the Lord's Supper with us. Why is that? To give the Lord's Supper to someone who has not been baptized, is to give the Lord's Supper to someone who has not been initiated into the life of the church by baptism and who consequently has not submitted to the church's authority to affirm their profession of faith. If if a believer has been baptized, that means that a local church has publicly affirmed their profession of faith and welcomed them into participation in the life of the body. And so we say to them, even if they're not a member of our church, They have been affirmed by a local church somewhere. You're welcome to the Lord's table with us. If someone has not been baptized, it means one of two things. Either they have not submitted to a local church's Christ-given authority to bind or loose, as we talked about last week, or they have submitted to a local church's authority, and the local church has found their profession of faith to be incredible. Either way, it is not appropriate to allow them the rights and privileges of life in the body. That would be an inappropriate, an inappropriate use of our Christ-given authority to bind and loose. I want to close this morning by reading a snippet again from Acts chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 41 and 42. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they, 
devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Belief, baptism, include inclusion in the number and life of the local church. For the next two Sundays, we'll be discussing these things in adult Sunday school. We encourage everyone who can to attend. We will be attempting to take some some threads, theological threads, and draw all these things together. I'd like to invite you now to think back to your baptism with these, these points in mind. And think about what was happening when you were being baptized. You were saying to the church, I have been joined to Christ. I have repented of my sin. I have trusted in Him alone. and I have identified with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. His death, my death. His burial, my burial. His life, my life. And I will live for Him. And I take my place in His church. That is what we say when we're baptized. That was happening when you were being put into the water. And that church, biblically, was saying, we affirm this person's profession of faith and welcome them into the corporate life of the body of Christ. Now, there may be those among us who, for whom some of these things are, are a bit foreign, maybe somewhat familiar. Just cut through the chase and, and, and say this. There may be those among us who have not done what I've just mentioned, and that is repented of their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just appeal to you as someone who cares for you. All of, all of these people in the room care for you. I, I say with, with great compassion that if you are not in Christ by faith, you are doomed. You are doomed. And only someone who hates you would not tell you that. You are doomed. You, like the rest of us in this room, you have sinned against God in so many ways. No, we, we, we can't even count them. The debt that you owe for that sin is so high and sin is so offensive to God, you couldn't even pay for one of those sins yourself. And so because of the guilt that is on you right now, you've earned rightfully, you are under the wrath of God and you are facing an eternity away from the presence of this glorious Christ that we have talked about and sung about this morning. You stare in the face in eternity in hell. But there's hope. There, there is hope this morning because Jesus lives and you're still breathing. Jesus lives. You're still breathing. And He, He is the only hope out of this mess that we've all created for ourselves. He died in the place of sinners so that if they turn from their sin, recognize Him rightfully as as God of the universe and Master. Submit their lives to Him in faith. Trusting in Him, not in anything that they have done to make themselves right with God. Trusting in Him alone. They are forgiven of all that sin. 
All of it, every bit of it. They're cleansed perfectly white before God. And they're given eternal life with Him so that they might spend eternity with Jesus Christ and His people in heaven. If you have any questions about that, you're in a room full of people who can answer those questions. But I would beg you not to leave here with those questions unanswered. I'm going to pray and then we will share a moment of of brief silence as we reflect upon these things. And then we will close out the service. Let's pray. Father, we're overwhelmed by Your goodness and Your your graciousness to us. Formerly, we were Your sworn enemies. What an amazing thing that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. And This was Your plan from eternity past to save those who hate You. Crack through our stubborn hearts that we might find You desirable again. Turn from our sin that had so blinded us and condemned us to death. Trust in Jesus. We thank You, Father, that You've done this in us. Pray, Father, that as we we move on with our day and enjoy a meal together and fellowship and, and then leave this place, that the things that we have we've considered this morning would remain on our hearts that we would continue to think about this good news of Jesus Christ. What He has done to to justify sinners, to save them, to save us. And what we are saying when we we put someone into a baptistry, we are saying, yes, we we identify you as a believer of Jesus Christ. We We believe you when you say that you have trusted in Jesus. We welcome them into the life of the body of Christ. Pray, Father, that You would fill us with gratitude to You for our individual conversions and and baptisms. That we would think back on them fondly and with with great praise today. Father, further, I would pray right now for those among us that may not know You, who have not turned from their sin and given themselves to You, Pray for your kindness upon them in the form of great conviction right now. You would flood their mind with the, the sin that is held against them. That they would feel, even physically, the weight of guilt. That you would do that graciously. That they, that they would, would understand the predicament that they are in, Father. And I ask further that you would allow them then to see the beauty of Christ. Eternal Son, who left the glory of heaven that he might save rebels, would move them to see that as the most glorious thing ever. Please move them to repent and trust in him unto eternal life. Or let this be the day that they 
are baptized into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.